commuter rail to Homestead, Metro Mover to Miami Beach, Hialeah wants to annex part of Brownsville, and why really did Juan Guaido show up in Miami this week? This is the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we look at promising signs that Miami-Dade's low-par public transit may be on track, literally, to reach long-neglected areas of the county, north, east, west, and especially south. We'll also examine Hialeah's controversial bid to expand into unincorporated Brownsville, one of Miami's most important historically black neighborhoods. And finally, why did Colombia expel Venezuelan democracy hero Juan Guaido? And why is he now in South Florida? All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. This week we learned an effort is underway to use freight train tracks running mainly across Miami-Dade's west suburbs for passenger rail lines. One would run from Miami International Airport along the 836 or Dolphin Expressway to the Doral area. Another, even more ambitious, would link the airport to Homestead in far south Dade using freight tracks west of US-1. As is the case with any project like this, a key issue is cost. But CSX, the Jacksonville company that owns the tracks, appears to be willing to negotiate a more reasonable price than it had on the table years before. All this comes amid other plans to expand a Miami-Dade public transit system that most residents here call woefully inadequate for a major U.S. city. They include sending the popular downtown Metro mover across Biscayne Bay to Miami Beach. What are your thoughts on Miami-Dade's public transit? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to explore all this new people-moving potential is Doug Hanks, Miami-Dade government reporter for the Miami Herald. He did some excellent reporting on this this week. And Hialeah Mayor Steve Bovo, who also chairs the Miami-Dade Transportation Planning Organization. Gentlemen, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Doug Hanks, let me start by asking, just how much freight rail are we talking about here that could be converted to passenger rail? It's more than 25 miles, and they need that long stretch to get down to Homestead. Right. So it's it's a significant uh, it's a significant system. Mm-hmm. But so, Doug, I I, I want to turn to a point you make in your reporting that Miami Dade County has had its eyes on these CX CSX freight tracks in years past. What has changed that has suddenly made turning them into passenger commuter rail viable? Well, I think the mayor will tell you we've been down this track before. He was leading the way. <laughs> Um, before the smart plan, um, that that was really the project that had the momentum that got people thinking, oh, maybe we could revive the idea of expanding rail for the first time since they kind of declared defeat on the on the transportation tax referendum and 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 right. all of that. So that was like I think 2015 or so. Right. Um, and we should and- remind we should remind people, Doug, that uh, when you when you say the smart plan, we're talking about the strategic Miami area rapid transit plan. Right, which was the 2016 kind of reset of transit planning in Miami Dade County. Right, and it launched a lot of studies, um, but that has resulted in 
one real project to South Dade, a rapid transit bus line, and one that's getting very, very close, also on private tracks, which is um, probably a tri-rail service on Brightline tracks between Miami and Aventura. Right. So anyway, as Mayor Bova will tell you, uh, he got very far along with this, uh, let's say maybe eight years ago, but then just as my, as I would describe it, cost became right. the issue, that CSX wanted too much money and they wanted to sell the tracks. This time around, the people pushing this say, well, things have changed. First of all, CSX sees more money to be made, and so they're willing to uh, lower the cost for Miami-Dade County to use the tracks because right. I think that CSX maybe sees more money to be made right. in freight and probably sees money to be made a la Brightline with real estate along the track. In more of a leasing arrangement rather than a purchase arrangement. Correct. Right. So the upfront costs would be less. Mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting that CSX this time is partnering with Brightline, and Brightline has great influence in Miami-Dade government and is able to get a lot of things done. So those are two mm -hmm. new factors we'll have to see play out. Mayor Bovo, why do you think uh, this plan is suddenly looking more viable than it did, as Doug pointed out, eight years ago? Well, I think you guys both kind of alluded to or nailed it. I think it's, um, you know, cost. Uh, once um, once CSX uh, began to telegraph that they were willing to come up with a lease agreement, um, I think to, to Doug's point, uh, they start looking at this as a uh, long-term play, which has a lot of potential real estate development. Um, let's face it, anywhere that transit has uh, has created uh, you know economic development and opportunity. It's all linked to to the development that comes along wherever people get on and get off. So I think CSX um, from from the initial stages that you had to buy everything and then they bifurcated it, buy one, commit mm -hmm. to the other, uh, we'll sell it separately, and now landing in an area where I think um, could possibly be uh, be uh, a positive movement, especially for those that live in the deep south of our county and those out in the west end of our county, right. um, this is an alternative. Like like Kendall, right. Yeah. Doug, Doug Hanks, describe for us the two main corridors in Miami-Dade that this new commuter rail service would serve. I mean, w and, and would this still be a mix of freight and passenger? How would it all this would work? A, yeah, it would be a mix. It would be like the Brightline situation now where there's uh, freight, trains and passenger trains it's really on parallel tracks um but the key is that you don't have to buy any land to do all this right the right. The, the the area the corridor exists and that's a big cost savings right and, and so what are those two main corridors that we're talking oh, about okay so the first one's very simple it's essentially just north of the 836 the dolphin expressway um running out past like the sweetwater right. um mm -hmm. And then the other, it's less, it doesn't really track something that we know, but it, it just goes out west kind of like to the rock mines. Right. Um, pet, you know, in the Redlands or whatnot. Right. And, and we should point out those rock mines is what CSX was using freight rail for in the first place. And what they are using it for. Right, what, right, right. What they right. are and using it for, right. And then it turns back down through the Redlands and then to, to Homestead. Right. So we've got one running east-west on the Dolphin, another running uh, more or less, uh, you know, from uh, sort of above the airport area down to the west, uh, down in, down into Homestead. Is that an accurate way of, of, of putting those two corridors? Correct. And so you'll see, 
I mean, you could theoretically just do the east-west, which is, you know, much would seem to be a simpler proposition, um, or you can do both, or you could just do the south. Right. And Doug, briefly explain to us why, when we talk about that east-west corridor, why the rapid transit bus line that had been planned for the Dolphin Expressway corridor got canceled, more or less. Yeah, I mean... That hasn't been fully explained, by the way, and it's still it is still alive. But the the T, I mean, you have Eileen Higgins, the county commissioner, who was the number one champion for this, said it's dead. Uh, and you know, despite paying consultants lots of money to suggest something, it turns out that when they finally started to implement this these rapid transit bus stations on 836, which is going to involve parking lots. Uh, at ground level and then taking stairs and elevators up to the actual expressway level, I think they've decided that just is not going to be practical. It won't be appealing enough. Now, Mayor Mayor Bovo, as head of the Miami-Dade's Transportation Planning Organization, why do you feel the commuter rail project is so important for these particular areas of the county? Well, let's, let's start off with the South. I mean, the folks that live in Florida City and in Homestead uh, currently today have uh, very limited alternatives, and they are uh, alternatives that, for the most part, are uh, uh, time occupiers. Uh, US-1, the turnpike, obviously, you gotta you got to pay to get on the turnpike. So that's, um, uh, for many of those, they're stuck in traffic as they're heading uh, northbound. The busway is something that we're very excited about, something I supported greatly as a commissioner and, and from the TPO. Um, because my understanding as the full development of that uh, bus route, the, the busway, it'll it'll go through intersections without having to pause. And uh, the stations that I've, I've seen already that they're building out uh, are very robust stations. Uh, there's still a development piece that I see is so slowly coming along. Um, these things work when people do not have to drive extended miles to park their car. If they could just walk a couple of blocks to the station, it's a game changer. Same thing applies for the West. You know, this is the economic engine of our county, west of the airport, and we don't have any adequate uh, transportation that could move people from the West into the downtown area or the airport, for that matter, um, uh, during rush hour. Again, alternatives are the uh, 836 and the toll road, and we've been down that road where where people complain about it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the more alternatives I think we give people, the better it is. Don't force anybody to leave their car, but at least give them the opportunity to know that there's an alternative to their car, and they may be enticed to take it, maybe Mm -hmm. once or twice, maybe more. We have Remy on the line from Perrine in South Dade, which would be served by this. Uh, Remy feels that the the role of population density is is playing a, a big part here. Remy, you're on the line. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Yes, yes. Good good afternoon. Look, the thing is, is that it, it also has to be cost effective. It, it can't just simply. Uh, you, you have to find a way to get people out of their cars to begin with. And that only works when you you have uh, urban areas being rebuilt vertically, where you have more people close together, where they could actually go to work. You have to find a way to to make it uncomfortable to drive. Like no more free parking spaces everywhere. But right now right. we're 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 just basically subsidizing people that don't need the help. In fact, listening to you. To, to the conversation, something occurred to me. Is it possible to get a supplemental gasoline tax 
to be put on gasoline, and then that money be shifted, shifted to initially uh, pay for, pay for mass transit right. so that it can, so that it can actually at least get to break even point. Right, Remy, all good points to think about. Thanks very much. And Mayor Bovo, for, for folks like me who live in South Dade, like Remy, but live well east of these CSX train tracks, can you tell us how the rapid transit bus system that's going up along US-1 will essentially fill the public transit void for us, or, or rather fill the void of the, of the county not expanding metro rail into South Dade communities like Perrine, where Remy lives? Well, a couple of things to unpack very quickly. Uh Remy mentioned something about, you know, some sort of other source of revenue. Uh, I, would, I want to remind everybody that while we were on the commission, uh, while I was chair there, we passed legislation that created rapid transit zones, which really captures uh, tax revenue, um, uh, basically a, a mile or half a mile each way from the center of all these rapid transit uh, or all these uh, zones uh, dedicated or, 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 or arteries dedicated. Uh, it creates funding. Uh, we've also worked extensively on making sure that MDX um, has some revenue that spills off of toll collection. We've got a bill in Tallahassee that works on the same end on turnpike. So there are – it is a funding issue, and if you if you could cry, try to create what they call a lasagna menu of revenues, there's ways of being able to pay for it so we could expand it and grow it. Now, on the busway in the south, one of the – you know, we've all wanted to see uh, Metro extended all the way down south, but unfortunately – the forefathers at some point ripped up rail that already existed along that busway and then paved it. So now we're yeah. stuck with a paved area, which the, the to me the allure is that that bus, currently if you drive on traffic, or at least these were the studies when I was there, currently if you drive on traffic on the U.S. one coming from Florida City, uh, Homestead, or Farine area, you know, you're going to be stuck in traffic for about maybe an hour, hour, 15 minutes heading south. On the busway, you'll be able to cut that virtually in half, a 40-minute mm-hmm. to a 30-minute, because apparently the bus would not stop at any intersections. That should be, um, you know, a magnet for folks to consider it. But it, again, mm-hmm. I think the, the, the real kicker here will be is if you could make development points all along. It's, it's happened at Brickell. It's right. happened at Dadeland, where you could create some energy there, go vertical, and people literally could have a, a system uh, door step away from their place. Right. Now, Doug Hanks, Miami-Dade County officials and CSX representatives plan to meet next month, if I'm correct. Do you see this project to convert freight rail to passenger rail here becoming a reality after that? Mm, well, you know, there's so much long further to go. I mean, for this to work, you're really going to need federal funds. At least that's what uh, the TPO members were saying at that me- at the recent meeting, and there's just a lot going on. And keep in mind too, the mayor mentioned the South Dade Busway. I mean, that's going to be serving Homestead, right? So yeah. at some point there will be an argument where you know we paid 350 million dollars for that. Do we also need this rail line? Mm-hmm. Um, and that busway could be. I, I think a lot of people could be shocked when that opens to see what it is. I mean, this is going to be. For the first time, buses not stopping at these intersections. You know, there's going to be gates that come down, mm-hmm. um, and these uh, these bus stations like we've never seen before. 
No, it, there's it, a chance it, people could look at that and say, "Oh, why don't we have this somewhere else?" It will be definitely uh, new for for this county, to say the least. Uh, Peter in Little Havana, uh, to 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 the point we've just been making, uh, he worries that we've seen too many previous proposals like this uh, uh, not come to fruition. Peter, uh, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. You're on the line. How's it going, everybody? Uh, Doug, nice to speak to you. Um, Hi. I I voted in 2002, I think it was, for the half-penny sales tax. That's I right. remember it well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was very psyched for it. I drove a car. Ten years ago, I voluntarily gave up my car. Uh, no DUI, nothing like that. <laughs> I gave it up, and I get a lot of shock from people. Oh, my God, how can you live in Miami without a car? So I've gone for ten years now, and I can tell you, if you use it and you do it correctly, it's absolutely uh, fantastic. Uh, recently, there was a uh, gas uh, fuel issue. I had no problem. I was still paying 225 each way. There are some issues where that they can improve, but but my my real big concern is we we we, we hear a lot about what's coming. We don't tend to focus on what what's here. I heard about uh, tri-rail being brought in on the 71st Street spur into downtown Miami. That still hasn't happened. That's been like five, six years. So I, I, I would just hope that we would focus on kind of the projects in the works. I mean, it's important to you know look to the future, but there's a lot of stuff that's out there. And to me, it seems almost like right. a diversion. We start talking about something else when we're not actually completing what we've already announced, such as the half-penny sales tax. Well, talking about projects that are already underway, Mayor Bovo, I also wanted to ask you where things stand with other plans for public transit expansion especially extending Metro Mover across the Bay to Miami Beach. The TPO met last week about these smart uh, smart program projects, did it not? Yeah, well, look, one of, the, one of the things that happens is that you've got uh, 13 commissioners. I was one of them, and it's not a, not a shot at them, but you've got 13 commissioners that are all looking out for their neighborhoods and, uh, and are being very protective, obviously. The TPO obviously has more members in it that are, are city-centric members. But if you look at the overall menu of, of things, uh, the to-do list, right, there's been a historic promise to the north end of our county, uh, to the stadium, to, to somehow or another extend Metro Rail or some format. Obviously, Baylink has been talked about for forever also. There are some alternative or competing right. methods, whether it's monorail or the extension of the existing uh, people mover today. Mm-hmm. Um, all these are things that, that are valid conversations. And how do we create better connectivity? You know, historically, uh, uh, a place like Dade County that has uh, really been car centric for so long uh, and our metro system really is very limited, doesn't really take you everywhere you want to go. Uh, unless you're in the downtown area and you want to do that, um, you know, it doesn't take you out west, doesn't take you out to the stadium in the north. And these are the challenges, I think, that, that we need to confront. And I think the frustration has been is, is a couple of things. One, the multiple studies that have to be done, environmental study, approvals, federal uh, studies, these things take just forever. And I think it, it fatigues people. You know, the half penny was, in my opinion, something that was woefully oversold and underperformed. It should have probably been a penny uh, in order to get some things done. But mm-hmm. not to rehash all those things, uh, I think, and, and I've said this many, many times, you got to do one thing. you got to do one thing, get it done, and show folks that there is a resolve to continue to working. The uh, D.C. metro system started right. at the same time that the county's uh, metro rail system. They never stopped, though. They right. continued to add stations, expand little by little. Now, the D.C. metro system is probably one of the most uh, robust, elaborate systems. Takes you where you want to go all over D.C. Right. And by the way, when you get off the station, you're in a robust activity. 
where you feel safe, economic activity, restaurants, shops, what have you. Right. That's what we need to aspire. I was just just visiting there a few weeks ago to see the cherry blossoms with my son, and let's hope that someday Miami-Dade County gets to that level you're talking about, Mayor Bovo. We'll have to leave. I'm sorry, Doug, you had one last thing you want to say? I was going to ask the mayor, do you think that the South Dade busway will, will be that project, or do you think there's another one that will be that? No, look, I think I think we need to point to that busway. If it's done right, Doug, and you, you've heard me many times say, you've got to collaborate with the cities there. You need to show them the advantages of being able to have a lot of development there, housing. It helps them with their tax base, but it'll create something that people could point to. Uh, and I think we could also show our federal and state uh, partners, look, there's a seriousness here. Uh, plus the fact that I know that we're dedicating more money because of all the things I've talked about uh, in the past that we could add to this lasagna of finance. But I'm look, I voted for that busway. I want to see it work. I think it can work. Hi, Elia Mayor Steve Bovo chairs Miami-Dade's Transportation Planning Organization. Doug Hanks is the Miami-Dade County government reporter for the Miami Herald. Thank you both for joining us on this really important topic, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Still to come, Hialeah wants to annex part of one of Miami's historic black communities. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Remember those iconic images of Muhammad Ali and the Beatles hamming it up at his Miami Beach gym in 1964? It's important to remember that in those days, the Beatles, because they were white, could spend the night on Miami Beach. Ali, because he was black, could not. Every evening, he'd cross the causeway and sleep in the historically black Miami neighborhood of Brownsville. So did other famous black Americans of that era, including Martin Luther King Jr., Brownsville sits just northeast of Miami International Airport. It's part of unincorporated Miami-Dade County, and it remains proud of its legacy as one of Miami's and America's most important African-American nexuses, which is why it's turning heads now that the city of Hialeah is considering incorporating a section of Brownsville. Hialeah officials say the annexation will expand the city's tax base and create more jobs. But most Brownsville residents oppose the plan. They say they want to retain control of the integrity of their historic community. Do you have memories to share about Brownsville? What do you think of Hialeah's expansion plan? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me to offer some insights is Joshua Savayos, WLRN's government accountability reporter, Kenneth Kelpatrick, president of the Brownsville Civic Neighborhood Association, Inc., and uh, staying with us very kindly uh, to, to also address some of this is my Hialeah Mayor Steve Bovo, who was with us in the uh, previous segment. Welcome to all of you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Josh, first off, I- explain to us how a city is able to annex a piece of unincorporated Miami-Dade County the way Hialeah is now considering absorbing a part of Brownsville. Right. So uh, like they mentioned at the Tuesday, April 25th meeting where they're discussing the proposed annexation, this is nothing new in Miami-Dade County. This is something that cities can do. There's a legal framework for doing that. And according to language from the uh, the county's own uh, site, um, if, uh, if a munis- municipality wants to incorporate an area, first it needs to be 
passed by the council or the commission of that city. They need to approve the idea and then it needs to go before the county. And if that proposed area has more than 250 residents who are registered voters, it needs to go to a referendum and the, the residents of that area need to vote and approve the annexation. Right, and in the case of Brownsville, we have more than 250 registered voters there. So if the, if the city and the county approve this plan, it will then go to a, a local referendum for those Brownsville residents? Well, it depends because the, right now they're just in discussion uh, periods. They haven't really carved out the exact map that they want. The map that they have right now includes exact uh, 259 registered voters in that area, but the map is subject to change. So if ah. somehow it c comes down somehow, it, it won't go to a referendum. Now, this is only about a quarter of a square mile of, of an area. Uh, of Brownsville, correct? Right. And, mm -hmm. and it's not, as we just pointed out, it's not heavily populated. Um, so take us through the Hialeah City Council meeting this past Tuesday night when this Brownsville annexation plan was brought up. I mean, first, what were the city's arguments for doing this? And, and, and Mayor Bovo, I want to ask you about this as well, uh, right after we hear from Josh about this. Yeah, so I mean, Mayor Bovo can definitely talk to this, but from what I see, the, the, the city is looking for new forms of revenue. Um, they're, they're kind of dealing with some issues with budgeting. There's, um, they need to expand services for the existing residents of Hialeah in a lot of areas. And as, as the council said, they don't want to raise any taxes. They don't want to ra raise property taxes within the existing area of Hialeah. Don't want to increase the millage rate. So if they want more revenue, they need to get more land. They need to do more development. And so that's why the it, it seems like uh, the council wants to expand. Mayor Bovo, you, you also have, have expressed uh, your feeling that this is an economic boon, both for Hialeah and Brownsville. Uh, can you elaborate? Yeah, first, I think it's important to understand that the area that we're talking about um, is kind of like it has a jagged uh, boundaries where um, if you if you think in Northwest 37th Street, um, there are sections that are in Hialeah, sections that are in unincorporated Miami-Dade County. Uh, it's an area that some of the business owners in, in the unincorporated part of the city had mentioned to us and through some of the council members that there was some uh, you know, lack of services from the county, lack of attention from the county in that area. And in some cases, the city of Hialeah's police department and fire department have responded to issues. Um, the the conversation, obviously, for the city of Hialeah, which is a, a city right now that's in a, in a vortex of a lot of growth and a, and a lot of economic activity, was, was obviously you want to keep your tax rate as low as possible. And the way you do it, is, is by uh, you know expanding your industrial base, your commercial base. And this is, for the most part, with the exception of a trailer park, um, all commercial. Unfortunately, and I, and I think it, uh, you know, it was a, probably a mistake on part of the consulting group that was asked to con conduct a study, they included a section of, of Brownsville residential area that also has a historic church. And, uh, right. you know, I, I have a lot of respect for, right, and uh, and that that would be the Brownsville Church of Christ, if, yes. if I'm correct. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, you're, you're you're correct. Now, I have a lot of respect for the the community in Brownsville. I worked very closely with a lot of uh, my colleagues. I've been working the phone and, and reaching out because I want them to understand that the city of Hialeah is not going to do anything that would somehow, in any shape or form, um, you know, uh, affect the integrity uh, and the history of the Brownsville neighborhood. Right. When we initially looked at this, we were looking at an area 
uh, and still look at an area that, by by all honesty, we've we've even served. Uh, there are you know areas in that area where we've gone in and and provided service. Mm-hmm. But um, look, but- uh, understanding the, the nature of the beast, I want to be able to do something if we're even going to move forward where we're in harmony. By no means, uh, no uh, want of the city do we want to ruin or, or, you know, trample on the rights of the folks Un- that brought the, un- under- uh, Right. Un- no, understood. And and not everyone in Hialeah agrees with, with doing this, we should point out. Uh, uh, there, there were some downsides to the annexation that we also heard at that meeting, correct, Josh, in, in, especially concerning uh, the cost to, to, to Hialeah uh, that, that, that might be involved. You spoke with Councilman Brian Calvo, and, and here's some of what he told you. My colleagues, you know, they didn't really voice one opinion or, or another for the most part. Um, but if you ask me now, like, what do I think and what I concentrated on Tuesday's meeting is, you know, I see it as a $4 million shortfall that we would be incurring by annexing this area. The residents of that area don't want to be um, annexed. So it just doesn't make any sense at this stage to, to continue in this process. Maybe in the future it's something that, that can be revisited. I don't know. But I think in the near future, certainly it doesn't make any sense to, to continue you know, spending any money on any further studies or any further exploration because it seems very clear that the residents that live in that area don't want it. And for us, it, we would actually be losing money. And Hialeah is an area that is um, has budgetary shortfalls. And so... Um, we we need to take care of our own right uh, residents, our own backyard before we even think about you know trying to to expand. And so, um, one of the the most recent stories that just came out is some of the concerns within our nine one one department, for example, where there is a, a a crisis of sorts where we don't have enough operators to field all the nine one one calls that we get, and we're talking about annexing an area that in the study showed receives an additional 1,700 plus um, calls for 911 on a yearly basis. So if we can't even handle our own calls, how are we going to be handling their calls? Uh, Not to mention, you know, hiring additional officers, hiring additional firemen. We need all that on our side of things in Hialeah. So I just don't see us in a position right now realistically to be expanding. Kenneth Kelpatrick of the Brownsville Civic Neighborhood Association, let me turn to you. Why do the residents of Brownsville oppose this annexation by Hialeah? Good afternoon. Um, the amended plan uh, called for annexation of all the warehouse district in Brownsville. And from, from where we stand, uh, this would be a tremendous loss in economic power potential for Brownsville's economic recovery. We, have, we also have master plans and plans that we've uh, uh, you know, been formulating uh, that whole area has been a part of the uh, Model City Neighborhood Re- Revitalization Strategy area for uh, many decades. Uh, you know, from the from the onset of uh, uh, the Model Cities program that came out of the uh, 66, uh, 1966 Demonstration Cities Act, uh, and then the 68 uh, implementation out of the White House. So mm-hmm. uh, we've been waiting a long time to um, to really uh, take advantage of the all of the areas asset. And the warehouse districts, uh, not only in Brownsville, but it, even moving uh, further north along those same uh, uh, sets of avenues between uh, about 33rd and 37th Avenue, uh, is supposed to be that shot in the arm for the black community moving forward. That's the long-term 
uh, plane. Mr. Kilpatrick, in, in, in what main ways would annexation by Hialeah, in your view, diminish Brownsville's important historic legacy in Miami? R remind us why this community is so important to Miami in that regard. Well, you know, if you if you look at, I mean, just taken from your earlier point of uh, Muhammad Ali uh, going to the, the Hampton House and uh, so many other uh, important um, international civil rights icons, uh, Dr. King had a favorite room right there at the uh, Hampton House and right. just about uh, maybe about a quarter mile uh, north uh, was another house called the Georgette's uh, Tea Room, which which is not as well known as the Hampton House, but it soon will be. Uh, a lot of um, celebrities and uh, very important African-Americans doing the segregated America, these were the places where after performances, uh, they could come and relax. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Billie Holiday, and you know others uh, of the like uh, also visited Georgette's Tea Room. Then we have, um, we have a, a, a very historic cemetery where uh, many of the pioneers uh, in, uh, in, in Black Miami uh, are laid to rest. Uh, D.A. Dorsey, who was the first African-American uh, millionaire here in Miami-Dade County, he actually owned Fisher Island uh, before it was sold to Carl Fisher. Um, and uh, he also owned an oil company as far back as 1925. And something that's uh, even less known, Mr. Dorsey is uh, the founder of the Seminola community. Right. That, so, that, 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 that is a, a rich history. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Hialeah's plans to annex part of historically black Brownsville. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, but Mr. Kilpatrick, what about Hialeah's argument that this is a lightly populated area of Brownsville and that the city's annexation could result in more economic activity that could benefit the more, the more populated area of the neighborhood that frankly could use it by all accounts? Well, if you look at, um, you know, how Hialeah and the African-American community see economic activity, you, I think you find a different definition. Um, for example, you know, for many decades, well, yeah, for many decades, you know, like after the 1980 McDuffie riots, the black community uh, pretty much packed themselves along 49th Street, 103rd Street in order to shop. So we became super consumers in Hialeah for many decades because after the McDuffie riots, there were no shopping malls. There was nowhere to, you know, to do business and so forth. So I think that you know, if Hialeah is looking at uh, the past, they're saying, well, you know, if you build it, African-Americans will come. But that's not the mentality that we have today. We, mm -hmm. when, we're, when we're looking at our neighborhoods and we're looking at uh, uh, commercial corridors, when we're looking at warehouse districts, we're also factoring opportunities to invest, to own, and to shop. So, uh, Mr. 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 Kupad, I'm, I'm sorry, we're running out of time. In the minute that we have left, you, a more sensitive issue, you also voiced concern this week that Hialeah does not have the best of reputations with the black community. What, again, in the, in the minute we have left, what specifically were you referring to? Um, the area of Seminola. Uh, Seminola was uh, once a, a, a bustling African-American community inside the city limits. 
of uh, of Hialeah. I had family who lived in Seminola in those days, and I, I went there often, so I remember it. Um, and today, that community is uh, being gentrified. I, to my understanding, less than 20% right. of and, uh, those who live there are African-American today. And Mayor Bovo, uh, if you're still with us, could could you respond on Hialeah's part uh, to, to, to that concern? Yeah, look, there, there's a lot to unpack. And, and unfortunately, the, uh, you know, trying to cast the city of Hialeah, the city itself, in some sort of negative light toward any community, uh, I, you know, I'm not sure is very productive. Uh, the whole goal here was to examine an area that is underserved and has been underserved for a long, long time. There's a lot of economic activity going on on the southeast end of the city mm-hmm. that spills into that area with right. factory town, a lot of development. The county's redoing 37th Avenue. But for the most part, that area has been neglected. Now, I have continued to pledge that we're not going to do anything, not only to offend or destroy the, the character and the integrity of the Brownsville area, but we're also going to be mindful because as the, the, the video or the, uh, the piece that you played with one of my council members, yes, at, at, at initial, there would be a loss to the city to do this. And obviously we need to be very judicious because we are not a city that has the luxuries of other cities. You know, the mayor and the city council don't have chauffeurs. They don't have police escorts. You know, <laughs> right. we are a very humble community and a very right. hardworking community. But Mayor Bovo, I'm sorry, we'll have to, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Steve Bovo yeah. is the mayor of Hialeah. Kenneth Kelpatrick heads the Brownsville Civic Neighborhood Association. Josh Ceballos is WLN's government accountability reporter. Many thanks to all of you for this this important discussion. Thank you. Still to come, why Venezuelan democracy movement leader Juan Guaido suddenly showed up in Miami this week. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. In 2019, the U.S. and much of the rest of the world recognized opposition leader Juan Guaido as Venezuela's constitutionally legitimate president. They did so because they considered President Nicolás Maduro an illegitimate socialist dictator. But today, Maduro is more entrenched in power than ever. The hope of restoring democracy in Venezuela has greatly faded, and so has Guaido's political relevance. This week, though, Guaido was suddenly back in the headlines. Claiming his arrest in Venezuela was imminent, he slipped into Colombia, where President Gustavo Petro was hosting an international effort to restart democracy talks in Venezuela. Then, just as suddenly, Guaido was booted out of Colombia and landed here in Miami. Was it a political stunt meant to revive Guaido's profile, or was it yet another example of Maduro trampling on human rights, this time with the help of his left-wing buddy, Petro. Either way, the drama highlighted how far away a solution to Venezuela's crisis appears to be and how difficult it will be for the U.S. to leverage regime change there. Are you part of South Florida's large Venezuela diaspora? Even if you aren't, call us. It's 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can tweet us at WLRN as well. Joining me now to help make sense of the Guaido gambit is Venezuela reporter Antonio Maria Delgado of the Miami Herald and El Nuevo Herald. Antonio, always great to have you on. Happy to be here, Tim. So as I said at the outset, suddenly Guaido bursts onto the scene again this week. 
Um, Antonio, walk us through his big adventure from Venezuela to Colombia to Miami. What actually happened? Yes, he, uh, he showed up in Colombia and that was very unexpected. It was not announced. Uh, as you know, he gave a press conference here in Miami. Right. I, he, I, was, I was at that yesterday in Coral, in Coral Gables, <laughs> right. That's right. You were there. And uh, uh, he was explaining how he was not allowed from uh, Cucuta, the border town, uh, to board a plane into Bogota. So he had to travel by road. Uh, and once in uh, Colombia, in was in Bogota, he said that he was uh, threatened with being to, with deportation, right. and that he was he was afraid he'd be handed over to uh, the Maduro regime officials, who he he, he claims uh, previously had claimed that uh, they were looking to arrest him, and somehow link him to the uh, all the uh, corruption uh, charges and and that were being looked at by uh, the regime. Right. I'm glad you pointed that out. That's one of the reasons he thought his arrest uh, was imminent, because they were going to somehow probably uh, bogusly link him to all this big corruption sweep that's been going on in, in Venezuela. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so uh, he later said that he was uh, helped by the U.S. to be able to, uh, to avoid uh, deportation into Venezuela and that they helped him uh, get him into a plane uh, bound for Miami. Right. Now, as you pointed out at that press conference yesterday in Coral Gables, Guaido seemed to make two key points. The first is that he believes his freedom, if not his life, is under threat by Maduro in Venezuela. And as you pointed out, and so he said he needed to come here not just for his own protection, but as he put it, the protection of the struggle to make Maduro hold a transparent presidential election next year. What do you think he meant by that? I think he's trying to uh, link uh, the struggle with uh, his situation personally. But also, um, as you know, there, the opposition has switched gears. And right. from, from what was in the beginning, a struggle to, to get Maduro out of the, uh, of the presidency, uh, now they're, they're aiming their guns to, trying to try to hold fair and uh, transparent elections in Venezuela. And uh, so they have been trying to get the, uh, the Maduro regime to participate in the talks in Mexico and try to set up the right conditions for these elections. Um, and, 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 and Antonio, we should, we should point out on a local level here that, that, that switch to more negotiating with Maduro instead of overthrowing Maduro doesn't really go down that well with the Venezuelan exile community here, does it? No, not at all. And, and one of the things that is going on with the exile community is that they feel, they feel let down by Guaido. Uh, and, you know, who has led this, this movement in the beginning to, uh, after this declaring that uh, Maduro was uh, in power illegally and that the main effort was to depose him uh, into some kind of negotiated uh, situation where an election could be uh, taking place. And for most people here in, in, in the U.S. that uh, were forced to flee Venezuela, they just don't believe that you could have 
free elections under the regime. Right. And uh, something else that the Venezuelan diaspora here, as well as the Colombian diaspora here, doesn't like is left-wing Colombian President Gustavo Petro. Uh, And the second key point I heard Guaido make yesterday was that when it comes to solving the Venezuela crisis, he thinks U.S. leaders should not be trusting Petro as a mediator. Why do you think? Uh, they basically, uh, the, the, the opposition and, and most Venezuelans that feel that uh, Gustavo Petro is it's an ally of uh, Nicolás Maduro and is not really seeking uh, a negotiated transition into democracy in Venezuela, but uh, trying to help Maduro obtain the legitimacy that is being questioned around the world. Right. So and, and Guaido and Guaido pointed out yesterday he felt that the fact that 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 Petro's government was threatening to deport him back to Venezuela shows, as he said, Petro está al lado de Maduro. That Petro is on the side of Maduro in all of this. Yes, he's saying that uh, he showed his true colors. Uh, by the way, he was ill-treated, and uh, as you were mentioning the, in the beginning. Uh, not so long ago, uh, the Colombian government was very close allied to the uh, to the opposition and to uh, yeah. uh, Juan Guaido. And now, you know, they treated him as uh, an undocumented alien trying to uh, move in through the country and that uh, they, they deported him or forced him out. All right. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Venezuelan democracy leader Juan Guaido's sudden appearance in Miami. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can tweet us at WLRN. But Antonio, I I saw a lot of criticism of Guaido on social media this week from independent analysts you and I often consult on Venezuela, that this felt more like a publicity stunt by Guaido to help revive his waning political relevance. Do they have a point or are they being too harsh? Well, I think they they, uh, they see Guaido as a diminished figure, and in that sense, uh, this could be seen as as a movement, as a as a ploy to try to regain some uh, some legitimacy in the in the public eye of Venezuela. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that was the case. Uh, I think he, he honestly tried to to be able to talk to the different delegations visiting visiting uh, Bogota. And uh, was surprised by the uh, the treatment he was he was obtaining. He seemed sincere when he said that uh, he felt threatened in Colombia, as he uh, normally feels threatened inside Venezuela. All right. No, no, no. I, I think you make a good point. Either way, this brings us to the international conference that Petro held this week in Bogota, which the U.S. attended, on how to restart those democracy talks between Maduro and the Venezuelan opposition. The sticking points are that Maduro insists the U.S. has to lift its sharp economic sanctions against his regime before he'll start making moves on election reform. The U.S. and the Venezuelan opposition say it has to be the other way around. Did the gathering, frankly, in Colombia solve any of this stalemate? Not at all. And and as as you mentioned, we have a a little bit of a chicken and the egg situation. Yeah. Uh, Everybody wants the other to uh, to. uh, give their concessions first. Um, it, it must be said that the U.S. has already given quite a bit. Uh, they have freed the uh, the narco sobrinos, the nephews of the uh, presidential couple uh, who were paying 
uh, a, a drug trafficking sentence in New York, and uh, they just, uh, we, you know, they had, uh, they haven't, they, they, they have not uh, finished a third of the sentence, and they turned them, right. uh, allowed them to go free, and also took some people close to the, uh, uh, to Maduro uh, out of the OFAC, the, uh, the Treasury the blacklist. Um, uh, and all of this incites a good faith. In, in Venezuela, they freed the number of uh, U.S. citizens who were being detained unjustly. Right. Um, but it seems that more there was an agreement under the table to do more, and both parts have have failed. And, and mainly, uh, the U.S. keep insisting for Maduro to go back to the negotiation negotiation table in Mexico, right. and uh, they keep dragging their feet on that. Right. So, Point, all good points. Antonio Maria Delgado covers Venezuela for the Miami Herald and El Nuevo Herald. Gracias, senor. Thanks again, Antonio. It's a pleasure. Finally on the roundup, we can't finish this week without talking about the Miami Heat. Game 5, Milwaukee, Wednesday night, overtime. The Heat beat the Bucks 128-126. to Two words, Jimmy Butler, a.k.a. Jimmy Buckets. WLRN's engagement editor, Katie Cohen, takes us back to that night. My husband and I were sitting on our couch. He was visibly stressed, silent, excited. Because I knew we had timeouts. I knew we had Coach Spo. I knew we had Jimmy. We were so close, just over two minutes. Jimmy on the wing, over Drew Holiday, another three. At one point, I couldn't watch. 2.1 seconds. Then this happened. Over the top to Butler. When Jimmy Butler made that shot, I was just like, what the? Jimmy Buckets somehow did it again. The whole time I was just screaming, Jimmy Buckets! That's freaking Jimmy Buckets! That's him! I was this, like, this is absolutely insane. What's but going on is Jimmy Butler! I was screaming so loud, my neighbors probably woke up. I checked my Apple Watch and my heart rate jumped from 80-something to 120 beats per minute when Jimmy made that shot. shot. that didn't make any sense and still went down. I was just like... Oh my God, what if this is like the beginning of a new era? It felt like watching Destiny. 12 more, three, one, two, three. 12 more. That was Travis Cohen, Julia Duba Angel, Natu Tway, Robbie Ramos, and Annie Rego. You also heard sound from ESPN and the Miami Heat's Instagram. Miami Heat play the New York Knicks on Sunday. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tue with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answer the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado.